Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn, and when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times best-selling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm going to choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. Back by popular demand, we have Brendan Kane with us again. If you remember, Brendan has helped some of the biggest brands in the world, companies like MTV and Viacom and Paramount and Ikea, as well as celebrities like Taylor Swift and Rihanna, reverse engineer how they make content go viral. And he and his company have helped to generate over 60 billion views and over 100 million followers. You heard that right, 100 million followers for the content that they've worked on. So he knows a thing or two about how this whole social media thing works. Part of the reason why is he was like me, and I don't mean to age you, around when Friendster was out in MySpace. So he, he got started early. He wrote the amazing book, One Million Followers, and the awesome book, Hook Point. And today we're going to dive deep into the subject that I know he loves. He might be tired of talking about by now, but he loves it and he's passionate about it. And it is how to go viral. So Brendan, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a true pleasure to connect with you again, Billy, and everybody that's tuning into this. Man, I'm pumped because I always feel like walking away from a conversation with you is a masterclass in understanding what a lot of us, we're immersed in it, but we don't take the time to think about it. And we'll get into the research and all the things that you've done. But one of the things you highlight, and you, you have a great video on your website, so go check out hookpoint.com and check out this amazing video. But one of the things you highlight is in the last 20 years, since the advent of social media, we've gone from, call it at most, 10,000 content creators to today, arguably, we have about 4 billion content creators. And that's a lot. That's a lot of noise out there. So what is the biggest mistake content creators are making that prevent them from rising above the noise? There's a few. I mean, I think that you hit it on the head. The first mistake is not realizing the world that we live in today. And that because there's 4 billion content creators on the planet pushing upwards of 200 billion messages into the world every day, the way that we have to communicate has fundamentally changed. And a lot of the communication principles that people use with marketing or branding were designed pre-social media, where there was less noise, less competition. And literally the world that we live in, both you, I, everybody listening to this, we're professionals at consuming content because we consume so much of it. So literally we can tell in a few seconds, even on a subconscious level, whether this piece of content is going to engage me or not. So 
I think setting that foundation is really the first place. The next big thing is really understanding what causes virality. And the thing that really controls reach and distribution of our content are the algorithms. And there's a lot of misinformation about the algorithms. And don't worry, we're not going to get into technical terms or science or anything like that. But at a large scale, the algorithms really have one goal and one goal only, and that's retention. Meaning the longer they can get people to spend on these platforms, the more ads they can serve, thus the more profit they generate. So because the algorithms have billions of content to choose from, they can be very selective on the content that they choose to distribute to millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people around the world based upon this principle of what content can I see to the widest possible audience that will hold their attention for as long as possible. So another big mistake, and I'm talking specifically with organic content, is people, again, are operating off this old paradigm that was designed pre-social media of we're going to create a niche message, a niche piece of content for a very specific niche audience. Now, that just doesn't work when the algorithms just want content they can see to as many people as possible and hold attention. They're not going to do the super hard work for you of processing billions and billions of pieces of content and finding that exact audience. So one of the fundamental principles that have really changed in content and communication at scale is what we call the generalist approach of how do we make people care about our subject matter, our expertise, if they know nothing about us, or maybe they had no interest in what we were talking about before. Like That is the key to virality because The truth is we are the algorithm's product. These platforms are not producing premium content to keep people on the platform. It's not like Netflix. We are the product. So they want to be our best friend. We just have to prove our ability to create content that the most amount of people care at scale, and then it'll drive reach and distribution. And I can also dive into some examples of that, but I'll just stop there for a second. I would love to hear the examples. I... In studying your work, I know that you've, one example is Ryan Serhan. I I was addicted with my wife watching the show Million Dollar Listing. And I had Chris Doe on my show and recently listened to your episode with him. And you commented on, on him, for example, which, yes, he has a wide net and it may only be a small percentage of people who could become his client. Let's face it, he's got high net worth individuals he's working with. But because he's casting that wider net, and he's making content for a more general audience, it goes against conventional wisdom, right? Because we get all mired in the like niche down, niche down, niche down, niche down, but then at what expense? So yeah, I would love to hear some examples. And I just want to comment on one thing. I want to double down on this. Yeah, we are living in the attention economy, but it's not just getting the attention. In fact, it's even more important to keep the attention. So yeah, I would love to hear some examples. Yeah. So just to close out that point that you made, because it's really important is we live in a micro attention world from the standpoint of grabbing attention. But once we have grabbed the attention, we can hold attention for a long period of time if our story is good. So that's why people will tune into a three hour podcast with Joe Rogan. That's why people will binge watch the latest Netflix show. So there is the capability of holding attention But because there's 4 billion content creators on the planet, we have to grab that attention. So a few examples, you mentioned Ryan Serhant. So just to kind of close out that you kind of hit the high level notes, Ryan Serhant sells 
properties that are 10 million and he just listed a property that's $250 million. <laughs> so as you mentioned, his core element that drives his business is high net worth individuals. So that's a very small audience. But again, he understands the communication world that we live in. So he contextualizes his social media content to be accessible, interesting, and entertaining for the widest possible audience. So what does he do is let me take you on a tour of a $7 million closet. Let me take you a tour on a $250 million home. Anybody would be interested to see that content. And at the same time, he's not diluting what his real company does. Subtextually, it's still playing to his core audience. Another example, and this is an example of the fact that most people think, well, my subject matter is too niche. It can't go viral. Anything can be made to go viral. And a perfect example of that is taxes. So there's a YouTube account called Clear Value Tax, and it's all about taxes. Now, the interesting part of it, and it articulates this point further, is there's a huge determining factor between the videos that go viral for him and the videos that underperform. And that's a big part of our process that we can talk about in a little bit. But when we look at the videos that underperform, it's about the Fed changing interest rates or student loan forgiveness, subject matters that apply to a very specific audience versus the videos that blew up on his account and he's over a million subscribers now was he has like four videos over 2 million views and they were released during COVID about stimulus checks. Mm. So how much is a stimulus check going to be for? When is the stimulus check going to be released? Is there going to be a second stimulus check? And if you remember back, in America, that was a huge subject matter that impacted a significant percentage of the US population. And even if it didn't necessarily impact you, you'd be interested to learn more about that. So when he leads with a very specific and niche message, it detracts his virality versus the more generalist message around stimulus checks. And it doesn't dive into like, nitty gritty tax details, it goes viral. It plays to that larger audience. Another example is there's a YouTuber named Graham Stephan who teaches finance to millennials. And finance is typically not a sexy subject, but his most viral video is how I bought a Tesla for $78. So that grabs the attention of a wide range of people, whether you have the money to just buy a Tesla outright, or maybe you don't have the money, you want to be interested to see how he actually achieved this goal. If he would have said, hey, I'm going to break down the financing of how to buy a car. Well, that's not interesting to most people. And even within that video, he is still playing into teaching people finance through his perspective of buying a car, what it means, how to go about it and things of that nature. There's another influencer, Dr. Mike, and he went viral by these videos of real doctor reacts to Grey's Anatomy and real doctor reacts to the good doctor. So these are very successful broad shows and he's tapping into that to say, oh, I would like to see what a real doctor, how they respond to this versus, you know, a doctor just breaking down all these complex medical terms and things of that nature. Yeah, I love all those examples. And I'm very familiar with Graham's work and that specific video. And I want to dive into the spirit of what you teach and what you do research wise and how you reverse engineer going viral. But before we go into that, I do want to tap into what you said a minute ago, which is you got the Joe Rogans of the world who 
can keep people listening for three hours. What do you think the best content creators do right to keep attention? And then we'll talk about get attention. Yeah, there's a few things. Joe Rogan, for example, it's the, it's the experience that he generates in terms of there's a huge difference. And, and one of the, the most powerful exercises is if you took you know, a viral clip of Joe Rogan versus you know, a podcast clip that has a thousand views of another podcast and put them side by side, you would see a clear difference in terms of the experience that he's creating. In general terms from content creators, it's really your ability to tell effective stories. And that's a very general thing to say. So let's talk about one aspect of effective storytelling. And that's tension and release. So when we look at a movie or a good TV show, if you looked at it at a graph, you would see tension building, tension release, tension building, tension release. Because let's just take, if you were watching Mission Impossible and the entire movie was him nonstop stunts, nonstop running, nonstop explosions, you would burn yourself out. At the same time, if he was just sitting around a boardroom just talking, you'd probably get bored. So even like in Mission Impossible, if you think about the beginning of Mission Impossible, it typically starts with some type of crazy stunt. Like one of the later ones, he jumps on the side of a plane and is hanging off the side of a plane as it takes off. And then after that, there is a release to it. You get into the story development and what's going on. It's the same principles with social content. So a lot of the top YouTubers use what's called Jenga theory. So a lot of people probably know the game Jenga where it's a stack of blocks on a table. And what happens is each person goes around the table and pulls a block out and you see if the tower is going to fall. So what happens is when somebody's pulling out that block, you're building tension. Is the tower going to fall? Is the tower going to fall? And then when you pull it out successfully, there's a sense of relief. And then the next person goes. So it's the same thing in social content is you'll see in the underperformers, they're typically monotone or there's no kind of like tension and release. It's just kind of flat. And that flatness can come in cadence, in your tonality, in your body language. And and you see the really effective storytellers playing with that dynamic to keep you engaged within the story that you're telling. Because again, we live in a world where there's 4 billion content creators. So we have so much content to choose from. Our ability to effectively tell a story dictates whether we're going to be able to A, grab attention and B, hold attention. Like that Graham Stephan video, How I Bought a Tesla for $78, it wouldn't have gone viral if the video wasn't any good. Because then we're just Mm -hmm. talking about clickbait, which really a lot of people have caught on to at this point and can kind of like see through that. That's right. If he didn't deliver on the promise made with the title or the thumbnail or both, then people would not want to continue watching and the algorithm would punish him and it wouldn't have taken off. off. Okay. So let's talk about now the getting attention and virality in general. You draw a connection between physics and virality. Why do you draw that connection? Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So if you think back to your science class, when they talk about putting things into orbit, you have to reach what's called escape velocity to escape gravity. Because if you don't get enough you know, velocity going, then gravity is going to pull you down to earth. It's the same thing as it pertains to content is you have to get enough velocity going. And that velocity is generated by two things, your ability to stop the scroll, or in the case of YouTube, getting the click on the thumbnail and headline. 
and then building that retention long enough for the algorithm to see, okay, this is playing to our fundamental business goals. So it has now escaped gravity. Now we can push it into the stratosphere. So that's really that analogy of escape velocity to content as it pertains to the algorithms. Mm. And I can give another analogy that people sure. may understand is I think most people have Netflix or watch Netflix. So think about Netflix as an algorithm. So Netflix invests tens of billions of dollars into original content. So when they make the determination, am I going to renew a show? What do they look at? A, are people even tuning in to watch the show? And if people are tuning in to watch the show, how much of the show are they watching? And if people are not tuning in to watch or not watching enough of it, well, then they're going to make the decision not to renew it versus the same goes with a show that does like a Stranger Things or a Squid Game. They see people are tuning in and they're watching the entire thing. So it has demonstrated its ability to grab attention and hold attention, which is the primary goal to keep people subscribed to the service. So it's kind of the similar nature to that. Yeah. And Netflix, they're not dumb. They're going to look and they're going to do research within the tapestry of their programming to figure out what works and what doesn't. And I know a big part of what you advocate for and what you do is research. And it's so vital. It's so important. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about A, why is it so important? And then B, what are some tips you can give? Let's be real about this. Most people won't take them because research is hard. But let's say the select few will actually do it. Would love some actionable tips to help somebody research so that they could be situated to best win on social. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first place to start is how can you expect to go viral consistently without understanding why things go viral? So an analogy is I started off in the film industry and I went to film school. So what happens in film school? Well, you sit down and you watch some of the classic films and then you sit down and talk about and break it down. Or you go to a screenwriting class, you learn the three-act structure, you learn the hero's journey, you learn these elements of what it takes to tell an effective story. The same thing applies to virality. It's sure there's a select few that intuitively pick up on it or get lucky at it, but that's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent. So for the rest of us, if we want to get good at content creation, we want to get good at going viral, generating views, generating followers, we have to understand the elements that go into it. And yes, research takes time and we could talk about it in a little bit, but that's the reason my company is solely focused on research and insights for people. But one of the things that that makes our process so successful doing 60 billion views and 100 million followers is we're always constantly learning from the best content creators out there. But the important distinction about what we do is we don't just look at a successful content creator's account and look at their virality or determine everything that they do goes viral. We look at their underperformers. So we have a research process that we do that's called gold, silver, bronze. And we do this in an Excel spreadsheet. We don't have a fancy technology or anything like that. So what we do is we look at a content creator, an influencer, a brand, or even a general format that goes viral. And what we do is we segment it. The gold is the highest performers. Those are the breakthrough ones. The silver is like the median, the average. And then the bronze are the underperformers. So what we do is we start with the gold and we start looking at the top performers of an account or of a format 
when we start generating hypotheses of what we think is driving that performance. And oftentimes we're not paying attention to the content, we're paying attention to the context. So we look at nuances like tonality, pacing, number of edits, first three seconds, captions, title cards. We look at the content from the lens of what nuances do we believe are pushing it over the edge and causing it to reach that escape velocity. But once we have those hypotheses, then we go and say, okay, are these variables, are these performance drivers showing up in the silver and bronze as well? Because if they're showing up in the silver and bronze, then we know that's not the reason it's going viral and you have to start that process over again. This is the biggest problem with looking at trends. You know, people talk about focusing on trends and duplicating trends because it's it's like the iceberg analogy is like above the water, you see the tip of the iceberg, but you don't see the bulk of it, the 99% below the water. It's the same thing with a trend is you see the top 1% succeeding, but you don't look at the other 99% that are failing with it. So a big part of our process is to not just look at the high performers, but look at the low performers and determine the differences between the two. And as you get good at this process, you see a stark difference between the two. So that's the core element of our research process. And then once we've identified those performance drivers, then we take the reference of a gold and we create a piece of content off of those learnings. Again, not copying their message, but copying the nuanced details of how they're telling their story And then once we have that produced piece of content, we put the reference on one side and we put the produced piece of content on the other side, and then we play them side by side and determine what is the difference? What are we missing? What did we not get right? And again, that process of that side-by-side comparison, you learn so much about the nuances that you're not getting right that's holding you back. Yeah, you're really turning this into a science, which is so smart because if you look at enough elements and break it down to the littlest details like you've just shared, you're going to find those nuances that make each tier different than the other. So what are some of the, if there are some commonalities of gold tier or gold level content, what are some of the commonalities that you find in in that area? Yeah. One of the big ones that we talked about is that generalist approach is people that can make the content accessible to the widest possible audience and they execute on other storytelling mechanisms generally win. So I'll give you an example. There's a clinical psychologist named Dr. Julie Smith, super viral on TikTok and Instagram. And when we broke down her content, even again, between the gold, silver, and bronze, one of the things that we noticed is that when she was breaking down a complex subject matter like depression or anxiety, she would use these physical props to convey the message that she was delivering. So I'm not going to get the content exactly right. So I'm just going to do it from a general sense. But one of her most viral videos is she starts talking about anxiety and panic. So what she does is she has like a bucket on her desk and she starts talking about anxiety and panic is like water going into this and the water raising to a tipping point. And once the water starts spilling over, that's when it becomes too much to manage. But if you start doing stuff like eating right or meditation, each time she talks about a solution, she drills a hole in the bucket and water starts spilling out. And she keeps doing that until all the water starts to get displaced to a manageable level. So because 
she is breaking down a very heady and complex subject in a way that's centered around this analogy of this prop that she's using. A, it grabs attention, but it keeps attention because people can follow it versus somebody else may do like listicles or complex heady terms and things of that nature. So that's, you know, one important element of it. I I mentioned also pacing. Oftentimes people will move too fast. And, you know, there's a principle that we talk about a lot internally is if the viewer feels like they're being left behind, like they can't keep up, you lose it. You lose them. And pacing is a big part of it. If you're moving too fast and people can't keep up, they get lost and then they tune out. Or another big mistake people make is they have too many things going on at once. They may have somebody speaking and then they have a meme card at the top, captions at the bottom, and music playing. And you've got all these things happening at the same time. And your brain is like, well, which one do I focus on? And again, when you get lost in that and don't know what to focus on, you feel like you're getting left behind and thus you tune out. So one of the big principles that we talk about is effect on the viewer as a storytelling element. And a lot of people don't think about that when they're producing content is what is the effect that you want the person on the other side of the screen to experience by consuming this content? And when you start viewing content in that lens, whether you're dissecting other people's or looking at your content, it gives you a completely different perspective rather than I'm just going to sit in front of a camera and just talk. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because most creators, they're kind of creating content for themselves or how they would want to receive content. And it's how they perceive the world. But you talk about, it really should be thinking about the other person who's on the other end receiving that content. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of understanding, especially from an emotional standpoint, how somebody is responding to content? We have a communication algorithm that we use with all of our clients and use in-house and Pixar uses it in all of their movie and their their script writing and ads. And basically it's backed by about 1.5 million communication assessments done worldwide. And it breaks down the way people perceive content, perceive you as a brand in six different ways. And it's broken down in math. So the largest subset of the population, 30%, engages with content based upon how it makes them feel. They want to feel emotionally connected to the brand or the content that they're consuming content from. The second largest subset of the population is fact-based, 25%. So for them, it's not about feeling, is does it make sense? They want to know data, facts, timeframes, who, what, when, where, why. The third largest subset of the population, 20%, is fun. So they're very reactionary. They want something visually stimulating. They want kind of that excitement level. 10% is values and opinions-based. So they're going to connect whether they trust the content, whether they feel the values being expressed that align with their values. Another 10% is reflective-based. The best analogy I can give you is the stories about Albert Einstein is he came up with his best ideas because he would sit by the window and stare out for hours on end reflecting on everything. So when you see people tuning out, sometimes they think they have learning disabilities, but oftentimes it's this reflective base that's really reflecting on the world. And then the smallest subset is action-based, 5%. So they don't think, they don't feel, they just move. They want the best, they want the bottom line. So again, Going back to Tom Cruise and Mission Possible, what is he doing? He's running. 
He's jumping off of buildings, hanging off the side of planes because incidents is their psychological need. So when we're looking at constructing content or analyzing content, we're perceiving it through this lens because as you mentioned, most people are designing content based upon how they perceive the world and not considering the different ways that people perceive it. So we often talk about with our clients playing the numbers of feelings, facts, and fun because that's 75% of the population. And it's you know much easier to kind of pull off. Now, in order to be successful, you do need to understand what your communication strengths and weaknesses are. Because if you don't have that level of awareness, then you don't know where you're falling short or where you're going overboard in your communication. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. If you're going for fun, but you're just not hardwired to do that kind of content, you would want to maybe look at another option. And I, I love that you really boil it down to the feelings, the facts, and the fun, because that comprises 75% of the pie. It's giving you the best shot of getting the largest audience, going back to kind of like even thinking about it from a generalist approach. So knowing all of that, what else should a creator, a content creator consider to make sure they're conscious, aware of this, but also creating content that aligns with that? Is there any other suggestions that you have to make sure that they leverage that truth? Yeah, I think that the big the big thing to keep in mind is with everything that we're saying, we're not pushing somebody to change who they are, what they represent, their message. It's more about how they contextualize it and bring it to life. So, for example, we talked about Ryan Serhant. He's not changing who he is. He's changing the way that he expresses his everyday life and the work that he does. Graham Stephan is not changing his goal that he wants to inspire millennials around, you know, smarter finances. He is just sharing his expertise in more generalist and interesting ways. Because I see that oftentimes when we talk about all these different things, people sometimes they put their their guard up because they're like, well, I don't want to change who I am. I am who I am. My message is what it is. And it's not about changing that. It's changing about the way that you can express it. So Again, that the majority of the population can connect with it and receive it. So again, it's less about your content and it's more about your context of how you're delivering your stories, your messages, your products and services. Mm, less about content, more about context. Yeah. So I'll give you a prime example. So we'll go back to the communication algorithm. We did a lot of work in real estate. We were brought in by Keller Williams and we did a deep analysis of how real estate agents present their properties. So we saw a clear pattern is a vast majority of real estate agents are presenting their properties based upon facts. This house has five bedrooms, four bathrooms and an acre of land. Now that is the house is the content, but the way that we're contextualizing is only reaching 25% of the population. So if I were to create a video around this house to broaden that that perspective using the communication algorithm, I may say this bedroom has five bedrooms, four bathrooms on an acre of land. And imagine what it's going to feel like when you and your family are sitting around that fireplace on Christmas Eve, opening up presents and all connecting with each other. And by the way, did you check out the pool in the backyard? You're going to have the craziest and funnest parties and all of your neighbors are going to be super jealous. And I firmly believe that this is the best house on the market for you because of the school district it's in. But I highly recommend moving fast because this house is not going to be on the market long. So will you schedule an appointment to view it with me? 
So the house is the content, but I'm changing the context of the different elements of the house and shaping it to the different ways that people perceive the world so that they can connect with it based upon how they perceive content. Mm, You're tapping into the emotion too. And it kind of reminds me a little bit about some of the insights that I gained reading Story Brand by Donald Miller. And they talk a lot about this idea of removing kind of the normal facts and figures that exist, or at least minimizing those and making it more about the hero, which is your customer. And, and to your point, making it emotional and having that emotional connection is super powerful. I wonder when we first met, one of the things that stands out is your trajectory on social was largely credited to your ability to test and pivot. How does that apply in the landscape that we're talking about now as it relates to virality? What do you suggest and why is it important if it is important to test? Well, by doing the research, you learn what you're supposed to test versus if you don't do the research, you don't understand, then you're just starting from scratch and throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and hoping something sticks. And oftentimes if something does stick, you don't know why it sticks. Mm -hmm. So the research really cuts out that learning curve and time and resources that's put into producing content that ultimately fails. Because by doing the research, you'll learn. And I literally just had an internal call with with my team talking about an organic strategy that we're going to use for our company. And we first started with what are the formats that we have research on? What are the formats that we know work? And how can we tie those formats and those nuanced learnings that we have to the message that we want to convey? Versus if we just started with saying, hey, we want to produce content around these messages, like we could spend months producing content that just ultimately doesn't work because we didn't pay attention to all these other variables. So a lot of the testing comes in is your ability to identify those nuances of storytelling and your ability to execute on them properly. So going back to that exercise of identifying the reference and putting it on one side of the screen and your video on the other side of the screen and seeing the distinct differences of what you got right and what you got wrong. So that's a lot of where that testing process comes in on top of just getting better and better at picking up in those nuances. And we even see it with the top influencers and video creators of where they start out. They may start with a format and it doesn't really fully take off in the beginning, but you see that they keep perfecting the way that they're tackling that format and the nuances until ultimately it clicks and then it takes off. Mm. One of the things that I'm thinking about as you're talking and kind of in my mind, I'm seeing Mr. Beast and I'm seeing Graham Steph and I'm seeing all these people that we've talked about. One of the things that they're master at is peaking curiosity and yourself as well. I was just on your Instagram page and a lot of the content, and I know you're not super active on Instagram these days, but looking at past content, it was like, it makes you want to look at it. It sparks an interest. Talk a little bit about that part of it. Why are we as humans so naturally curious? And is that an important element that we should be considering? Yeah, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier of the fact that there's 4 billion content creators and there's micro attention for grabbing attention. So Oof. it becomes critically important. And, and one of the things that we talk about a lot is pattern recognition and pattern disruption. So pattern recognition is knowing that when you yourself are consuming content or 
your end consumer is they're watching LeBron James dunk a basketball, Kim Kardashian talk about fashion, a Netflix trailer, Kevin Hart telling a joke, and then your content comes up. And you have to think about it in that context of the pattern of the consumption of scrolling, 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 and then your content comes up. What is going to cause somebody to stop and pay attention to it? And a lot of that is happening in the first three seconds of that. So as we talked about earlier, we want to set a clear expectation of what is going to happen in those first three seconds, but without overwhelming the viewer. Like one of the biggest mistakes people do is try and do too much. Like I said, they'll have a meme card, they'll have somebody talking, they'll have captions, they'll have movement, and you don't know what to focus on. So it's setting a clear expectation in those first few seconds without overwhelming them, but a unique perspective. Because if somebody is scrolling through their feed and they see a video about psychology, taxes, whatever it may be, basketball, and they think they already know what you're talking about, even if you have a different perspective, they're moving on. You know, it's like for <laughs> totally. me, for me, I consume a tremendous amount of sports talk radio on YouTube. And like the thumbnails and headlines, if I think that I've already seen the story covered and know everything about the story, then I move on. But it could be the same story that I know something about, but it looks like from the thumbnail and headline that they have a different perspective than I've heard, then I'll dive into it. So those are just some kind of nuanced elements to that and really thinking about how am I setting a unique expectation of what the viewer is going to get. And that expectation can come in words, it can come in visuals, it can come in text. There's so many different ways that you can express that. Yeah. And to your point, you don't want to overwhelm because you don't want to draw attention within your own content from one place to another. You, you really want them to be zeroed in on what the core message is. One of the things I'm actually quite curious about, and you touched on it a little bit, which is, let's face it, all of these platforms, they're not producing their own content. They're relying on other, other, it's third-party content created by the users. So we are the customer, we are the audience and everything. And so the algorithm is set up to, as you said so beautifully, it's to keep attention. And also, yeah, you want to find things that will get the attention to begin with. But what else should we know about the algorithm, including maybe some myths or some things that we got wrong when it comes to the algorithm? There's a few things. I mean, one is that the algorithm suppress your reach on purpose to pay for reach, to boost your posts. That's not the case because otherwise nobody would ever go viral. There's a huge emphasis on like hashtags, time of day, frequency as the key to growth. But again, why would an algorithm favor your content for any of those things if it doesn't grab and hold attention? Now, I'm not saying that maybe 10 years ago when there was less content on the platform, it would favor those things. But it's almost like saying that you're going to sit down on Netflix and watch a TV show because you saw the length of the video or you saw the number of episodes or the length of those episodes that's making your determination whether you're going to watch something or not. You don't. You watch the trailer, a friend tells you about it, and you know you're either in or you're out to watch that content. So the same principles apply to your consumption behavior. Is that You can't take a, a poorly crafted piece of content and make it go viral because you use the right hashtag, because you posted it at the right time of day, or because previously before that you posted 10 clips instead of two clips. Yeah. 
That's so, oh man, that's, that's a really great point about Netflix. You're not looking at all that stuff. So let me ask you this, man. Why do you do this? I mean, you're a super bright guy. I related to your story as a previous film student. I went to film student here in LA as well and, you know, did all the things that you talked about. So I was sort of chuckling and out of school, I made a movie and then I got into podcasting and, and as things happened, I worked for Tesla and all that. But I'm curious, man, you could do just about anything that you put your mind to. What do you think the main reasons are that you're, doing what you're doing right now? Well, I think it just interests me. I think I'm a huge student of human behavior, human psychology, and social media is probably one of the biggest data sets of it. And it's a massive challenge. It's a massive problem to solve when you need to stand out amongst four other billion content creators. So, I mean, what really drives me is just learning how things work and then sharing that information with other people. And I just so happened to start in social media in the earliest stages of it. And I just saw there was massive growth potential with it. And there were no real rules to it. There was no textbook to it. So mm. you kind of had to, you know, and I hated school because I did, hated being told what to learn. I love to kind of learn things, but learn the things that I want to learn. And social media in the beginning, and it still holds true today, is there's no real definitive textbook. We're always constantly learning as this medium constantly evolves, as culture shifts, as the content and the formats and things shift. So that really, I think, what what fuels me and keeps me inspired to continue down this path. It is fascinating, right? The human behavior behind how we interact in this new world that we live in is fascinating. I'm, I'm deeply curious like you about all the nuance and all the layers to it. It's, I mean, just to have a front row seat to be here at this time, because let's face it, even just 30 years ago, it was a completely different than it is today. And who knows what will be 30 years from now. You talk about your love of learning and studying. Curious as you reflect and you think back to the last, call it 15 years, 17 years, since you really started getting immersed in Social, what are some of the, and I really want to get like deep here. What, what are some of the biggest learnings or lessons that you've learned? It could be from a person. It could be from your own research, something that maybe we haven't talked about that would be valuable as a parting gift for our listeners here. What are some of the biggest insights? This show is all about insights. So what, what are some of those biggest ones that you, you look back and you say, okay, this is one of the biggest aha moments I've had. Well, I think if we're talking about something that we haven't discussed is when I was working with Taylor Swift, it was really fascinating because she really understood something that nobody else did. And a lot of people still don't understand about social media in that social media is a one-to-one platform and people treat it as a one-to-many platform. Because if you think about when you're consuming social media, you're playing on the couch, you're in bed, you're on the bus or the train. You're not sitting in a stadium watching social media together. So it was, you know, it made her so effective. And if you go back to the original YouTube influencers, they made you feel like you were in the room with them. They were speaking directly to you. And there was, you know, it was a long time ago, but there was an interesting article of Variety at a time where they were interviewing teenagers about who their favorite celebrities were. And it was like the top six were YouTubers. Hmm. And it makes sense because a YouTuber and somebody that's good at it, 
made you feel like you were personally connected versus like Leonardo DiCaprio or Robert Downey Jr. It's a very passive experience. Like you don't feel connected to them as the individual. Yes, you go on this amazing story and journey with them, but when somebody is directly talking to you and makes you feel like they're speaking to you on the couch or in the bed or whatever that may be, it creates a stronger bond. And that's, I think a lot of people misinterpret social media because you can post a video and a million people can view it, but it's not a million people sitting in a stadium viewing it together. That's right. That's such a great point and such a great insight and great way to end our conversation. I want to thank you once again for being here. For those who have not checked out 1 million followers, please go check out that book as well as the website hook point. If you want to see some of Brendan's speaking, you could go to brendanjkane.com forward slash speaking. You can also find him on LinkedIn, also at Brendan J. Kane. His Instagram is Brendan Kane and his Facebook is Brendan James Kane. Where else can they find you? And where else, what else would you like to share for anyone who's interested, who maybe want to, wanting to learn more from you and be a student and understand all the things that go into going viral or winning on social, what else would you like to share? Yeah. As you mentioned, you like doing research can take a lot of time, energy, and effort. So we actually created a private community that people can access at goviral.hookpoint.com. Again, that's goviral.hookpoint.com, where every week we have a private mastermind where we go live and we break down a content format of an influencer and explain why it's going viral, share the research with you, and actually give you a chance to ask questions. And then also after the call, we summarize it in an activation guide. So we do that week in and week out so that you can constantly pick up the nuances of this storytelling. And as social media changes and evolve, evolves, you're also prepared because we are constantly, we have a team of analysts that are looking at this stuff every single day. So we basically do the hard work for you of breaking down the research and insights and delivering them so you can start applying it into your content. Love it. So it's goviral.hookpoint.com, correct? Yeah. Perfect. Thanks, man. Hey, Brendan, it's been an absolute pleasure. So excited to reconnect and learn and just open up that incredible brain of yours and so many valuable insights, so many things that I know will help anyone who applies them. And that's what it's all about is application. It's all theory until you actually take action. So take action, make the steps and do the things necessary to do what you can do to make your impact on the world. Brendan, thanks for being here and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.